Chapter 3 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life, Volume 1, by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. The Vernonry. These things all happened a great number of years before the beginning of this history. Catherine Vernon had become an old woman. At least, she was sixty-five. You can call that an old woman, if you please. Sometimes it may mean the extreme of age, decrepitude, and exhaustion, but sometimes also it means a softer and more composed middle age, a lovely autumnal season in which all the faculties retain their force without any of their harshness, and toleration and Christian charity replace all sharpness of criticism or sternness of opinion. Sometimes this beautiful age will fall to the lot of those who have experienced a large share of the miseries of life, and learnt its bitterest lessons. But often, and this seems most natural, it is the peaceful souls who have suffered little to whom this crown of continuance is given. Catherine Vernon belonged to the last class. If her youth had not been altogether happy, there had been fewer sorrows and still fewer struggles in her life. She had gone along peacefully, her own mistress, nobody making her afraid, no one to be anxious about, no one dear enough to rend her heart. Most people who have gone through the natural experiences of life are of opinion with the laureate that it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But then we do not allow the other people to speak who know the other side of the question. If love brings great happiness, it brings many woes. Catherine Vernon was like Queen Elizabeth, a dry tree, while other women had sons and daughters. But when the hearts of the mothers were torn with anxiety, she went free. She had the good of other people's children in a wonderful degree, but it was impossible she could have the harm of them. For those whom she took to were the good children, as was natural, the elect of this world. Her life had been full of exertion and occupation since that night when Rule called upon her at the Grange and set all the world of her being in movement. What flagging and loneliness might have been hers! What weariness and longing had ended at that time! Since then, how much she had found to do! The work of a successful man of business increased, yet, softened by all the countless nothings that make business for a woman, had filled her days. She was an old maid, to be sure, but an old maid who never was alone. Her house had been gay with young friends and tender friendship. She had been the first love of more girls than she could count. By the time she was sixty-five, she was a sort of amateur grandmother in numbers of young households. A woman with plenty of money, with a handsome, cheerful house, and a happy disposition, she had at least since her youth was over, never had occasion to remember the want of those absorbing affections which bind a married woman within her own circle. The children of the baron, in her case, were more than those of any wife. If ever in her heart she said to herself, like Matthew in the poem, Many love me, yet by none am I enough beloved, the sentiment never showed, and must have occurred only as Matthew's did, in moods as evanescent as the clouds. Her face was not without lines, for that would be to say that it was without expression. Nor did she look too young for her age. But her eye was not dim, nor her natural force abated. She had a finer color than in her girlhood. 
though the red was not so smooth, but a little broken in her soft cheek. Her hair was white and beautiful, her figure ample, but graceful still. At sixty she had given up work, entering upon, she said, the sabbatical period of her life. For the rest of her days she meant to keep Sunday, resting from her labours, and indeed with perhaps too close a following of the divine example for any human creature to venture upon, finding them very good. It follows, as a matter of course, that she had found somebody to replace her in the bank. There were so many Vernons that this was not very difficult to do. At least it was not difficult to find candidates for so important a post. Descendants of the brothers and sisters of the great John Vernon, who had first made the bank what it was, were plentiful, and from among them Catherine Vernon selected two hopeful young men to carry on her work. One of them, Harry Vernon, was descended from the daughter of the great John, who had married a relation and continued to bear the family name. The other went further back and traced his descent from a brother of that great John. The parents of these fortunate young men acquiesced with delight in the proposals she made to them. It was a certain fortune, an established living at once, far better than the chances of the bar, or the Indian civil examinations, or Colorado, which had begun to be the alternative for young men. Indeed, it was only Edward Vernon who had parents to be consulted. Harry had but a sister, who had come to live with him in the fine house which the last John, the one who had put the bank in such deadly peril, had built. Edward lived with Miss Vernon herself. Five years had passed since their inauguration as partners and managers, with very little change in their feelings towards the old cousin who had done so much for them, and whom they called Aunt Catherine. She was Aunt Catherine to a great many people, but these three, who were the nearest to her in blood, were disposed to give themselves airs and to punish intruders who presumed upon a fictitious relationship. They were, to all appearance, quite satisfactory young people, if perhaps not brilliant, and pious persons said that Miss Vernon had got her reward for her kindness to the poor, and her more than kindness to her poor relations. She was surrounded by those who were to her like children of her own, no mother could have had sons more respectful and devoted. Good and virtuous and kind children, what could a woman have more? Perhaps this was rather a flattering and ideal statement of the case, but at all events one of the young men satisfied all Miss Vernon's requirements, and they were both steady-going, fine young fellows, paying every attention to business, keeping everything going. Ellen, perhaps, was not quite so satisfactory. She was young and headstrong, and not sure that Catherine Vernon was all that people made her out to be. There was nothing wonderful in this. To hear one person forever applauded is more likely than anything else to set an impatient mind against that person, and Ellen kept her old cousin at arm's length and showed her little affection. Nobody could doubt that this must have vexed Miss Vernon, but she took it with wonderful calm. "'Your sister does not like me,' she said to Harry. "'Never mind, she is young, and she will know better one day.' "'You must not think so,' Harry said. "'Ellen is foolish and headstrong, but she has a very good heart.' Catherine Vernon nodded a little and shook her head. "'It is not a heart,' she said, "'that is disposed towards me. "'But never mind, she will think better of it one day.' "'Thus you will see that Miss Vernon escaped from the worst "'and had the best 
of motherhood. What a bitterness to her heart would this alienation have been had Ellen been her child. But as the troublesome girl was not her child in reality, the unkindness vexed her in a very much less degree. She was able to think of the boys who were so good without being disturbed by the image of the girl who was not so good. And so all things went on serenely, and the years went by, gentle and remarkable, tranquil years. Several years before this, before indeed the young people had entered into her life, the old house, called the Heronry, came into Miss Vernon's hands. It was at some distance on the same side of the common, but a little further out towards the country than the Grange, a large old red brick house in the midst of a thin but lofty group of trees. Though it was so near the town, there was something forlorn in it, standing out against the west, the tall trees dark against the light, the irregular outline of the old house flush against the sky, for it was a flat country, no hills or undulations, but everything that was tall enough showing direct against the horizon in a way that was sometimes very impressive. This great old house Miss Vernon made a curious use of. It contained a multitude of rooms, not any very large, except that which occupied the centre of the area, a sort of hall with a great staircase going out of it. From the moment it came into her hands, she made, everybody thought, a toy of the heronry. She divided into about half a dozen compartments, each with a separate entrance. It was very cleverly done, so as not to interfere in any way with the appearance of the place. The doors were not new and unsightly, but adapted with great care, some of them being windows a little enlarged. What was it for? All kinds of rumours ran about the town. It was some sort of a convent which she was going to institute, a community of an apostolical kind, a sisterhood, a hospital, a set of slum houses. Some went so far as to call it Catherine Vernon's Folly. She spent a great deal of money upon it, elaborating her whim, whatever it might be. It was fitted up with apparatus for warming, which would make the dwellers in it independent of fires, people said, and this looked like a hospital, everybody allowed. There was no end to the conveniences, the comforts of the place. The old-fashioned gardens were put in order, and the greatest trouble taken to make the old pool, which had got the place its name, and where it was said that herons had actually been seen in the lifetime of some old inhabitants, wholesome, without prejudice to the health of the house. The pool itself was very weird and strange to be so near the dwelling of ordinary life. It lay in the centre of the clump of trees of which had once been a wood, and which round it had grown tall and bare, with clumps of foliage on the top and straight long stems mounting to the sky and shining in long lines of reflection in the still dark water. Several gaunt and ghostly old firs were among them, which in the sunset were full of colour, but in twilight stood up black and wild against the clear, pale sky. This pool was about as far from the Grange as Miss Vernon could walk with comfort, and it was a walk she was very fond of taking on summer nights. The common lay between the house and the town. Beyond it spread the long levels of the flat country. In the summer all was golden about, with gorse and patches of purple heather, and the abundant growth of wild, uncultivated nature. What did Catherine Vernon mean to do with this house? That was what all Redborough wanted to know. 
By the time at which this story properly begins, Redborough had been acquainted for years with Miss Vernon's intentions. They were indeed no longer intentions, but had been carried out. The heronry had changed its name, if not formally, yet in familiar parlance, throughout all the neighbourhood, and was called the Vernonry, even by people who did not know why. The six dwellings which had been contrived so cleverly were all occupied by relations and dependents of the family, members of the house of Vernon, or connections of the same. They made a little community among themselves, but not the community of a sisterhood or a hospital. It was said that they had their little internal feuds and squabbles, as people living so close together are always supposed to have, but they were sufficiently well-bred or sufficiently in awe of their cousin and patroness to keep these quarrels decorously to themselves. How far they were indebted to her for their living, as well as their lodging, nobody knew, which is not for want of many a strenuous investigation on the part of the neighbourhood. But the inmates of the Vernonry were clever enough to keep their own counsel on a matter which involved their own consequence and credit. Disagreeable things were indeed said about genteel almshouses and poor relations when it first became a question in Redborough about calling on the new residents. But as it turned out, they were all persons of pretensions expecting to be called upon by the county and contemptuous of the townspeople. Five of the six apartments into which the old house had been divided were occupied when Redborough was startled by the extraordinary intelligence that the last and best had been reserved for no less interesting an inmate than Mrs. John Vernon, she who had left the town in circumstances so painful. John Vernon, the unfortunate, or the culpable, who had all but ruined the bank and left it to its ruin, had died abroad. His wife's marriage settlement had secured their income, but he had spent as much as it was possible to spend of that, and forestalled every penny that he could manage to forestall. His debts were such that his widow's income was sadly crippled by the necessity of paying them, which it was said she would not herself have seen so clearly, but for the determined way in which it was taken up by her child, a very young girl, born long after the catastrophe, but one who was apparently of the old stock, with a head for business and a decision of character quite unusual in a child. Mrs. John's return caused a great sensation in Redborough. She was very well connected, and there could be no question in anybody's mind as to the propriety of calling on a woman who was aunt to Sir John Southwood, and first cousin to Lady Hartingell. How she could like to come back there, to live within sight of her own beautiful house, and to be indebted for shelter to Catherine Vernon, was a much more difficult matter to understand. But, as everybody said, that, of course, was Mrs. John's own concern. If she could make up her mind to it, certainly nobody else had any call to interfere. But what a change it was from the fatal day when poor Mr. Rule all anxious and miserable, was shown in by the curious servant to the costly drawing-room, in which John Vernon's wife and her spotted muslin sat ignorant of business, but confident and satisfied in her good fortune, and in the certainty that all would go well with her. Poor lady! She had learned some few things since that day, but never had grasped the mystery of her downfall, nor known how it was that everything had collapsed in a moment, tumbling down like a house of cards. She had not indeed tried to understand at that terrible time when it all burst upon her, 
when the fact that she had to leave her house and that her furniture was going to be sold in spite of all her indignant protestations compelled her understanding such as it was into the knowledge that her husband was ruined she had too much to do then in crying in packing in appealing to heaven and earth to know what she had done to be so cruelly used and in trying to make out how she was to travel to be able to face the problem how it had all come about and after she went away the strangeness and novelty of everything swept thought out of her mind if indeed it ever entered there at all perhaps it was only after that life was over and when widowed and growing old she came back to the strange little house which catherine vernon had written to offer her that she remembered once more to ask herself the question or perhaps even then it was not she who asked it but hester who greatly excited with eyes large with curiosity and interest clinging to her mother's arm in a way she had which looked like dependence and was control went all over the new old place with her drinking in information esther led her mother wherever she pleased holding her arm embraced in her own two clasped hands it was her way of holding the helm she was a tall girl of fourteen when she came to the heronry outgrowing all her frocks and all her previous knowledge and thirsting to understand everything she had never been in england before though she prided herself on being an english girl she knew scarcely anything about her family why it was they lived abroad what was their history or by what means they were so severed from all relationships and friendships the letter of catherine vernon offering them a house to live in had roused her with all the double charm of novelty and mysterious unknown relationship who is she cousin catherine papa's cousin why is she so kind oh yes of course she must be kind very kind or she would not offer us a house and that is where you used to live redborough i should think in a week say a week we might be ready to go it was thus that she carried her mother along who at the first did not at all intend to go hester arrived at the curious old house which was unlike anything she had ever seen before with eyes like two notes of interrogation brilliant flaming inquiring into everything and as soon as her mother had rested and had taken that cup of tea which is an Englishwoman's comfort, the girl had her out to see what was to be seen, and led her about, turning the helm now one way, now another. The grange was visible as soon as they got beyond their gate, and on the other side of the red roofs of Wilton Street, standing on the only height that exists in the neighbourhood, there was the white and splendid elevation of the white house, still splendid, though a little the worse for wear mrs john stood still resisting the action of the helm unconsciously and all at once began to cry that is where we used to live she said with little sobs breaking in that that is where we lived when we married it was built for me and now to think i have nothing to do with it nothing it was then that the question arose large embracing the entire past and so many things that were beyond the mother's knowledge why did papa go away mrs john cried she could not help it feeling in a moment all the difference the wonderful change the downfall and reversal of everything that in those days she had expected and hoped she dried her eyes half a dozen times and then burst out again oh what have i done that so much should happen to me and catherine vernon always the same she said 
After a while, Hester ceased to ask any questions, ceased to impel her mother this way or that by her arm, but led her home quietly to the strange house with its dark wainscot, which was so unfamiliar, and made her lie down upon the sofa. Mrs. John was not a person of original impulses. What she did today she had done a great many times before. Her daughter knew all her little ways by heart. She knew about how long she would cry and when she would cheer up again, and in the meantime she did her best to put two and two together and make out for herself the outline of the history. Of course she was all wrong. She had heard that her father was the victim of a conspiracy, and she had never seen him on any but his best side. Her idea was he had been wronged. Perhaps he was too clever, perhaps too good, for the designing people around him, and they had laid their heads together and procured his ruin. The only thing that puzzled Hester was the share that the unknown cousin Catherine had in it. Had she been against him too? But if so, why was she kind to his wife and child? Perhaps out of remorse and compunction. Perhaps because she was an old woman and wanted to make up a little for what she had done? But this was all vague, and Hester was prudent enough not to make up her mind about it until further inquiries. She put her mother to bed in the meantime, and did all the little things for her which were part of Mrs. John's system. She brushed her hair, still so pretty. She tied nicely, as if it were an article of full dress, the strings of her nightcap. She put all her little things by her on the table by her bedside her Bible and prayer book, the novel she had been reading on the journey, a biscuit in case she should wake up feeling faint in the night. There was quite an array of small matters. And then Hester kissed her mother and bid her go to sleep. You will not be long of coming to bed, dear, Mrs. John said. And the girl promised. But she went away, carrying her candle into one wainscoted room after another, asking herself if she liked them. She had been used to big white rooms in France. She saw gleams of her own face and reflections of her light in the deep brown of these walls with a pleasant little thrill of alarm. It was all very strange. She had never seen anything like it before. But what was the reason why Papa left? What had he done? What had been done to him? One of the downstairs rooms opened upon a pretty veranda into which she was just about stepping notwithstanding her dread that the wind would blow her candle out, when suddenly she was met by a large and stately figure which made the heart jump in Hester's breast. Miss Catherine had come out, as she did so often at night, with a white shawl thrown over her cap. The road was so quiet, and if it had been ever so noisy, Catherine Vernon could surely dress as she pleased and go as she pleased from one place to another in Redborough and its neighbourhood. She saw coming out upon her in the light of a candle a pair of brown eyes, large and wide open, full of eager curiosity, with a tall girl behind them, somewhat high-shouldered, with clustering curly short hair. Catherine Vernon was not without prejudices, and she did not like Mrs. John, nor did she expect, or perhaps intend, to like her daughter. There was something in the girl's face which disarmed her suspicion, but she was not a person to give in and give up her foregone conclusion on any such trifling occasion as that. End of chapter 3. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto.